Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast. This is the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart, and I'm here with... Aaron Badgley. And Aaron, we are hitting two milestones here. First of all, it is episode number 80, so congratulations, my friend. Congratulations to you, too. This is a lot of your doing, more than me, so congratulations to you. And it is our, what's this, our second holiday episode, our Christmas slash holiday episode, and we've got a great one, folks. We're going to be talking about who, Jimmy Buffett, and of course, Bing Crosby. What else we have on tap here, Aaron? Well, we also have kind of the 70s version of Bing Crosby, Johnny Mathis. Well, I guess he's more the 50s, Bing Crosby. And of course, what Christmas show is complete without talking about the Sex Pistols? Yeah, I agree. I don't think about Christmas unless I think about the Sex Pistols. So <laughs> we have got... Actually, we, we have two stories about the Pistols, actually. We do. And one of them is the oddest story you're going to hear this week, folks. I guarantee it. So hold on to your hats and buckle up because this is episode 80, our holiday special. So today, folks, we're going to be concentrating on December the 25th throughout the years. And to start things off, we're going to go way back to December the 25th, 1946. A little baby boy was born. Turns out that this guy is possibly, Aaron, the most interesting man in the world. I had no idea about (laughs) half this stuff. He is so fascinating. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the one and only Jimmy Buffett. And Tony, I agree with you. And I I felt when I was doing some research on him, I thought, what rock have I been living under that I've missed all of this somehow over the last, what, 50 years? Yeah. Um, He's a fascinating guy, right? Well, he is. So let's, of course, everybody knows Jimmy Buffett for his 1977 hit, Margaritaville, which is covered by every band everywhere. I don't think I've, (laughs) (laughs) I used to cover that as well back in the day. And he had, that that only made number eight though, which I can't believe because that got so much radio play. (laughs) You know, I think the thing is, is that you only need 145 per house party, but 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 he's he's an interesting guy because I mean besides first of all Tony the man's worth as of twenty seventeen nine hundred million dollars U S yeah I mean he's starting to you know he's not quite giving McCartney a run for his money but oh my goodness like nine hundred million yeah. is something else and he's he's a hard worker because besides having I don't know thousand albums out there he's also a best selling author and. He has two restaurant chains. One has closed down called Cheeseburger and Paradise. But Margaritaville Cafe is still going. It's a chain. I've seen them in the States. Yeah, I've been to one, actually. I was in one in uh, Nashville. So, <laughs> Were you really? Yeah. Oh, okay, no, no, no. How was it? How was it? That was great. Like, you know, it was exactly what you'd expect with a Jimmy Buffett-themed restaurant. But yeah, that was quite some time ago now. Yeah. Were they playing Jimmy Buffett music while you ate? Uh, they do have Jimmy Buffett music on, and I did hear Margaritaville, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect nothing else. <laughs> so, yeah, he had the Margaritaville Cafe. That was what I went into. And he developed, it's now defunct, but it was called Cheeseburger in Paradise, which is a very Jimmy Buffettish name as well, isn't it? He's, oh, and his fans, I, yes, it is. And he has his fans. And they're, first of all, I have to ask you, I'm going to take a step back. Are you a fan? I'm not a parrot head. 
as they call it, his big fans. But are you a fan of Jimmy Buffett or? Uh, yeah, I'm not a parrot head either, but I am a fan. Like I, I like his music and I, the whole vibe that that guy gives off, but it's interesting because he gives off that Mr. Relaxed chill vibe when you hear songs like Margaritaville, but then you look at his real life persona and that guy obviously was a really, really hard worker. Still is. Yeah. I mean, he still is. And, and, I just heard his cover of um, Happy Christmas War is Over off his Christmas album, and it ain't bad. He does a nice, he does a really nice version of John's song. He is a hard worker, Tony. This is, he's written three number one. Okay, let me repeat this. Three number one bestsellers. Tales from Margaritaville, Where is Joe Merchant, both spent, are you ready, Tony? Over seven months on the New York Times bestseller list. That's amazing. Uh, and... His memoir, A Pirate Looks at 50, went to number one, making him one of few authors to have reached number one on both the fiction and nonfiction uh, book lists. That is amazing. Now, let's take a look back at his years, too. I love this. He played trombone in the school band, <laughs> which is very cool. He's one of, like, like I said, he's, this guy could be the most interesting guy in the world. You know, um, as a child, he sailed with his grandfather he graduated from a place called the McGill Institute for Boys in 1964, and then he started playing guitar when he was at Auburn University. And then he went on to Pearl River Community College and finally the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. So he was all over the place. Got his bachelor's degree in 69. In history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? Uh, you know, he was uh, an yeah. initiate of a fraternity at uh, the University of Southern Mississippi. He worked for Billboard magazine, Aaron. Did you know that, that he worked for Billboard? I, I had no idea that he was a writer for Billboard magazine, and he actually broke the news of the flattened Scruggs breaking up. I, I Wow. I mean, I, I, I was like, okay, am I reading about Jim? And again, I'm going to repeat, where have I been for the last 50 years? Have I missed all this, you know? Oh, me too. I'm, you know, because I knew about the music, but I didn't know about a lot of this other stuff. So... Absolutely incredible. So his birthday is coming up. Uh, he was born in 1956. Now, the chart that you picked today, though, this is wild. So what did you pick here? Well, I, I went to see what his top five selling albums were of all time. And what I was, first of all, surprised about was, you you know, in, 19, in 2004, he made number one with an album called License to Chill. And that's not in the top five, which speaks to how many records this guy has sold. And number five is an album called Christmas Island, which I just mentioned, this Christmas album. It sold over a million copies. Now, that may not sound like a lot, guys, but this is at a time when streaming is everything, and he's still selling physical copies of records. So number five, Christmas Island. Can I add something there as well, Aaron, before you sure. go on to number four? These no, days, too, in, in this modern era, I mean, good luck finding an artist who sells a million copies of a physical album, right? Oh, it, it's, I mean, I think him, there's very few, Adele, McCartney, but this guy, he kind of flies under the radar, Tony. Like, you know, you you, you don't, okay, I can't speak for, for where you are in Ottawa. I don't hear him on the radio in Toronto at all. Maybe once in a blue moon, Margaritaville, but nothing else. Yeah. But you know what I was, was saying there with that million album benchmark, like I, I read something, this would be maybe four or five years ago, that the top selling album that year didn't even move. It was Taylor Swift, and it didn't even move a million units. It was 900 and something copies, right? 
So that's right. That's right. Because and that happened again to her this year. Yeah, uh, because again, of streaming. her album Midnight. Yeah, it's all streaming. Taylor Swift's album is number one again, and she didn't sell many physical copies no. of it. The most, you know, what the number one physical selling album was of twenty twenty two. Probably a McCartney album or something. Or? No, you know, <laughs> well, I'm very flattered. No, it was Rumors. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, the people were buying that in droves, and that was prior to Christine McVie's unfortunate I passing. was going to ask you if there was a bump from her passing or not in the, you know, but I imagine there I'm would sure be. there was. I'm sure there was, but this is an album that just keeps selling and selling and selling. Like the other, in the top 10, you got Abbey Road, Dark Side of the Moon, Thriller, the usuals, right? Yeah, but, the Eagles' greatest hits all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Eagles, yeah. Um, number four for, for Jimmy is a song, an album that my brother had, Son of a Son of a Sailor, which sold over, oh, over a million copies. His classic album, Changes in Latitude, Changes in Attitudes, 1.1 million. What a great title. Oh, yeah. Meet Me in Margaritaville, 1.6. And his biggest album, Songs You Know by Heart, 7.8 million. So the man has certainly earned everything he's got, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Oh, me too. And now I just want to go and run out and buy a, a biography about Jimmy Buffett. I just thought he's so interesting. I might buy his memoir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an incredible guy. We're going to be talking about another interesting person here, Bing Crosby. And we're going to jump back to December the 25th, 1954. And I'll give you a big hint, folks. This story involves White Christmas. We'll be right back. Tony, I don't think this is a big secret. I'm a huge fan of Bing Crosby. Besides his Christmas music, I, I love his films, his music. He pioneered the use of a microphone. I read a book about him where he was the first artist to really utilize the microphone in terms of distance from mouth and how he, he used it. He single-handedly brought audio tape to North America, which is, you know, thankful. And he recorded a song in 1942 that has gone on longer than anyone thought it would called White Christmas from a movie called Holiday Inn. Tony, quick fact. Did you know that when Holiday Inn came out, White Christmas was not thought of, no one thought that'd be the hit single. Everyone thought it was the February, the Valentine's song called Be Gentle With My Heart. And uh, it was only later when everyone started playing White Christmas on the radio that it became the mega seller that it has become. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. So we're looking at 1954, 12 years. This just gives you an idea of the popularity of this song. 12 years after it came out in 1942, it entered the Billboard pop chart for the 11th time. Like, that's amazing. Well, here's something even more amazing. It's number 10 right now on the Billboard pop charts. Just entered. So now that we're in uh, 2022, do you know how many times it's been on the charts now? I mean, it was 11 in 1954. What would be up in the 20s, 30s, maybe now? Actually, it's been on the charts over 40 times. Oh, incredible. Yeah, it just will not go away. They will not kill this song. So here's an interesting fact, Tony. In 1940, okay, back in the 40s, before tape, which I mentioned that Bing Crosby kind of brought over, they used to record directly onto what they called a disc, a mother disc, and they would use that disc to make 78s and records, right? Yeah. But they had a 
they didn't realize this, but if you kept using it, it would wear out. But in 1942, the the, the disc for White Christmas wore out by 1944. They had oh. to, to re-record the song. So the version, the version we hear mostly is the 1944 version. Just a little tidbit there for you. So he had to go back in studio and re-record in 44? Is that that's what you're saying? Yeah, and he tried to re- replicate identically with the arrangement and everything of the as the 42. And there, there is a difference. I could play you both versions back-to-back, and you can hear a, a slight differences throughout the song. But they had to re-record it because the mother stamper uh, literally wore out. And once tape was brought in, they just quickly transferred it to tape. So it wouldn't. the 44 version is the one that they continually used that probably sold over, you know, a hundred million copies around the world, right? Yeah. So I mean that's gotta be one of the biggest selling records of all time then at this point. It was it's well, you know number one selling record of all time, or single, is Elton John's ca- uh, Candle in the Wind nineteen ninety seven. You know okay. the, the tribute to Princess Die. Yeah, that sold more copies. That uh, well, yeah, well, number two. What an amazing amazing run that has had and like you said you know it was not even considered to be the one that they thought would be a hit so there you go now you picked for 1954 the top five u.s singles charts here right so what were people listening to so as white christmas is going back up the charts number five was joe stafford make love to me i love joe stafford i just think she's had an underrated singer these days and great voice number four the Crew Cuts, Shaboom. Number three, Rosemary Clooney. Hey there. I love Rosemary Clooney too. Tony, I'm going to give you the uh, honor of going number two because he's one of your favorites. Well, Mr. Relaxation himself, Perry Como with Wanted, number two. And back over to you. How can you not love Perry Como? <laughs> uh, number one was, was actually my mom's favorite song, I think maybe of all time. Kitty Callan, Little Things Mean a Lot. So I grew up listening to that song quite a bit in the uh, Badgley household. So there you go. Oh, excellent. So we're going to take another break here, and then we're going to go to December 25th, 1976. And a certain singer from the U.S. who made number one on the U.K. singles chart, and it was his only U.K. number one. So we'll be right back, and you'll find out who that is. All right, folks, we are at December the 25th, 1976. A singer who is not quite as relaxed as Perry Como, but still a pretty smooth guy, though. Johnny Mathis hit number one on the UK singles chart, and this is the first time and the only time that he did that. It was the Christmas hit of 1976. It was called When a Child is Born. And Johnny Mathis was a pretty smooth singer, eh? Yeah, I think people forget that at one point he was one of the largest selling, again, you're going to go back to to charts. This guy had many hits. And it's surprising he only had the one number one in England. That that just shocks me. Yeah, that was surprising to me too when I read it, you know, because I remember him from when I was a kid and and I... You heard Johnny Mathis all the time. Well, he, he even had number ones in the U.S. in, in 78 with, um, you know, songs like Too Much, Too Little, Too Late with Denise Williams. I mean, he he was he was huge. And in fact, his greatest hits album, up until the Eagles' greatest hits, was one of the biggest selling albums of all time. I mean, 
I mean, it's he's just massive. And, you know, he's still going, right? He's 87, and I think he still occasionally performs. I don't think he tours. No. But he okay. does He does, uh, He does. does perform every so often. Okay, I have to ask you, Tony, are you a fan? Uh, I'm a fan. I'm not a big I'm not certainly not a connoisseur of Johnny Mathis's back catalog, but I, what I do know, I really like, and and as an artist, I think he's great, you know, as a singer, love his voice. Yeah. I was just asking what, what's your take on it? Cause he's got a very unique voice. I don't think anyone else, when he started, I don't, I'm not sure that anyone ever had that kind of, uh, I don't even know how to describe his voice, but it's, it's very, it was different for the times. Do you not think so, or am I? Way yeah, off base? I do. It was very different for the times, and I mean, he's got he's got an incredible range too. Actually, he's one of those singers with a big range in his voice, and I don't know. I like him. You know, again, I'm not incredibly familiar with his back catalog, but what I do know of his, I, I've always thought he's a great singer. So, what about you, fan? I, I I would say I admire his talent. I mean, I love the song Chances Are. I grew mm-hmm. up with that. The 12th of Never as again, a, a big hit in the Badgley household growing up. I always thought his voice was so unique. Like, I, I just remember, as soon as he comes on there, even today, like, I'm, I'm listening to oldies Christmas music, and the second he comes on, you know it's Johnny Mathis. Yeah, you know, he yeah has. That's, that's true. Yeah, there are certain singers who are just like that, right? And Yeah, because, like, I heard Vic Damone. I thought, who is this? Who is this? Is this Dean Martin? It's Vic Damone. But there's no kind of like, hmm, I don't know who this is. Oh, Johnny Mathis, instantly. And and um, I always thought he had good production on his records. Like, I thought whoever produced his stuff really knew how to produce his voice really well. Yeah, it was very smooth. You know, I was mentioning that during the intro, like, uh, you know, kidding around that he was smooth like Perry Como, but he was a really smooth singer, very, very smooth voice. And he had a lot of Christmas hits. I'm not sure that people are aware of this. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas was a big hit for him for Christmas music, Sleigh Ride, Winter Wonderland, Oh Holy Night. And a song that I think is misunderstood, Tony, called We Need a Little Christmas. Have you ever looked at the lyrics of that song? No, I haven't. It's really sad. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, check it out one day, folks. Because it's like, you know, we I've grown a little leaner, grown a little meaner, grown... Like, it's really a sad song. I, I, I need a little Christmas to cheer me up. But anyways, uh, back to Johnny Mathis. Yeah, he had only one number one in the UK, which is When a Child is Born. I love that song. What I, I love that song, too. And I also love his version of Sleigh Ride. I still... I think prefer his version of Sleigh Ride to almost any other one, actually. So yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. Like he, he, you, you kind of forget about him, and then you hear it, and you kind of go, "Oh yeah, he was, he was this really." And he, he survived through rock and roll, through the Beatles, through disco. This guy kept going and going and going, and he kept producing new music. Like he's, I, I got to give him credit for that. You know, he never quit. No, he never quit, and also. Uh, you were mentioning on the break, you know, that Johnny Mathis is gay. So he would have had that as well from that era. He would have had to hide that. And um, I can only imagine the struggle that uh, musicians would have had to go through and, or movie stars or anybody like that, you know, just having to hide your your whole life away, right? Yeah. And, you know, and he, and he, I mean, he couldn't hide the fact he's African-American, but I mean, that was another barrier that, you know, even in the 50s, yeah. he had to overcome. And as you say, he had to hide a lot of his private life and that's fine i mean it, it's it is his private life but um you know it's 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 
got to be it's got to wear on you on some level, right? Well, it, it sure does. You know, I, I like I said, I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for artists to have their. You know, you, you'd hear stories about uh, gay uh, musicians or actors who would just have a, a fake marriage or a fake girlfriend, right? Who was just like their beard or whatever they call it, right? So that when they were out in public, nobody would question their their sexuality. Well, one of the saddest comments he made was in 1982, he kind of inadvertently outed himself, for lack of a better term. And then he would not talk about it. And in 2006, 2006, folks, he said that his silence had been because of death threats he received as a result of him coming out in 1980. Death threats. Wow, that's awful. I mean, so it's heartbreaking when you read that. And, um, you know, it kind of overshadows things. And it, sh and it shouldn't because really when it comes down to it, this guy, I mean, first of all, did you know he was an avid golfer? And he's had nine hole in one, holes in one really? in his career as a golfer. That's pretty cool. I don't golf, but that's, I understand that's pretty good, right? Well, yeah, nine. That's incredible. Yeah. That's like half a golf course. <laughs> <laughs> he's a decent. He's a decent guy. I mean, he he's established many charities. He's and he does it very privately. He doesn't kind of go overboard. And and the Irish part of me wants to note that he actually started a golf tournament that's still going on in Belfast to this day. So, you know, which goes all the money goes to charity. So good on him. Yeah, know? for sure. Now let's take a look. You're, we're 1976 here, and I'm dying to know what was in the top five. You chose the U.S. singles. I'm going to say that this is my wife's top five because she had all five of these singles when she was a kid. I oh. had none. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing on here that really did it for me either. So, well, I don't mind number five, which is Boston more than a feeling. Leo Sayer, number four, with "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing." Number three, The Spinners, "Rubber Band Man." Oh, I remember that song. Yeah. I, you know what? I didn't until I heard it. And I kind of went, oh, yeah, now I remember that. Number two, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. with You Don't Have to Be a Star. Mm -hmm. And number one, okay, I I'm, I'm, I, I love Rod Stewart. Me too. I'm a fan, but I'm not a fan of the song Tonight's Tonight. No, I don't like some of those ones from that period, you know, I, I, but a lot of guys kind of straight off the path in the mid to late seventies and, and they, they got back on, you remember some of the garbage that the stones were putting out at that time too? <laughs> Tony, tell me how you really felt. Cause I, I'm trying <laughs> to read between the lines. <laughs> right. You remember a song like miss you and it's like, Oh my God, come on boys, just stick to rock and roll, please. You know? Oh yeah. I, I was not a fan of miss you or, or a couple of the other ones were just kind of like dancing with Mr. D. No, thanks. No, no, Nick, stop, stop. And you know, um, looking at the number five here, Boston, I like, I'm not a Boston fanboy. I like Boston. Don't love them, but I, for God's sakes, could they be any more pretentious, Aaron? Like just, just saying, I, I found them the <laughs> reading the liner notes and interviews and stuff. It's like, for, for goodness sakes, boys, like you're, you're a rock band, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't even know where to go with <laughs> because because I agree with you because it's like it's like you're not Peter Gabriel just saying exactly <laughs> I, I see my Marianne walking away it does not come up there with you know yeah. take a sad song and make it better I'm sorry it just doesn't no you know? exactly well this sounds like a great time because we're both giggling <laughs> away here this is a good time for a break and we're going to be talking about the Sex Pistols next. I can't wait to talk about this. This has got to be one of the weirder stories we've ever covered. And it's uh, it's a feel-good story too. So we'll be right back. 
I am a big Sex Pistols fan, Tony. I, I I don't know if you're a fan of their music. They're not pretentious. Uh, you got to give them that. They're they're <laughs> probably the one of the one of the least pretentious bands ever to come across anywhere. But the Pistols did something really heartwarming. I know you're probably going the Pistols and heartwarming, really. But they did in 1977 on December the 25th. They played their last ever UK gig until they reformed in the 90s, 96. They played a show in Ivanhoe in Huddersfield, but this was a very specific show, right, Tony? What was the what was special about this show? Well, yeah. Besides the fact that it was their last ever UK gig, it was the audience for this gig, and you will never believe who was in the audience for this. The audience was a bunch of seven to ten year olds. And, and I'm not joking here, folks. Uh, the Sex Pistols decided to put on a charity performance. So a little backstory here. Yeah. There were, there was, firefighters were striking and they wanted, you know, to be paid fairly. And it was Christmas time. And we're talking about working class people in a, in a, at a time when the UK was in dire straits financially, right? In the late seventies. And the Pistols decided to put a charity performance on so that these kids could get, would be able to have a Christmas party and would be able to get some Christmas gifts, which I had no idea about this. It was amazing. But the better part, Aaron, uh, what was that link I showed you last night? They actually have footage of the gig, which which blew me away. Had you seen that before or no? I'm going to be honest with you. I had never seen that before. I knew about the show, but I had never seen that footage. So when you sent that over to me, the link so I could watch it, it was like, wow, I've never seen this. And it was, I think I said to you last night, you know, it was kind of funny, but and at the same time, it was really sad. There was a couple, there was a comment that you highlighted by one of the parents, right? Yeah. It said, you know, uh, we weren't, certainly we're not Sex Pistols fans and uh, we didn't know what to think about these guys, but it's really nice to know that there's somebody who cares about us. How sad is that? Oh, it's heartbreaking. And, and you know, England's famous for their, well, I'm going to say ruthless strikes where you, you remember the minor strike, how long that went on for mm-hmm. and Thatcher would not back down and people starved, literally starved. But the footage I thought was funny, but it was also really heartwarming. I mean, Lydon really behaved himself. And I thought the pistols actually were quite, for them. Yeah. (laughs) Let me stress, for them, respectable, you know? Well, they were. They took it really seriously. They did. And uh, when you you look back at interviews, they said, John Lydon said that even Sid said that was one of the highlights of his time with the Sex Pistols was doing this show and they decided to be on their best behavior. I mean, do you see the footage of them? Like they're serving up cake to all the kids and, <laughs> and you've got all these, like, just imagine this folks, all these seven year olds and to 10 year olds running around wearing like, you know, uh, never mind the bollocks wear the Sex Pistols t-shirts. <laughs> 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 but they gave out a ton of swag. They were giving out skateboards and hats and yeah t-shirts and serving these kids cake. Like it, it was really cool. Really, really cool. Well, well that was what I mean. Cause it's funny. They're, you know, they're, they're these little seven year olds with never mind the bullocks on their shirts, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which, you know, they wouldn't even put that title on the charts. They just like, we're not printing this in the magazine, but here are these little kids running around and, they're, and they're, they've got their little Christmas hats on. And when I saw the footage of them serving up cake, I thought, 
this is a different side of the pistols that people never talked about. I mean, everyone kind of talked about the the chaos and all the the bad stuff that went on, but they, they the, their hearts were in the right place. And I mean, what can you say? I, I I I'm a fan. I've been a fan since I can remember. I I, I saw them in '96 here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to tell you a funny story. When they played in Toronto. You know, this this silly trend happened where people would spit, and and the Pistols hated it. And Johnny Lydon said, no spitting. And this guy in the third row spat, and Johnny Lydon just dropped his microphone and said, either he leaves or I do. Oh, wow. (laughs) So he saw him being passed over the heads of people. (laughs) He's gone. He's out of here. (laughs) We want the Pistols. We don't want this joker being an idiot. Oh, my. um, but this was a very unique piece of their history that doesn't get explored. And I just love the footage. I showed it to Andrea last night and said, look at this. This is, And the kids were having a great time. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. And the parents were so appreciative, right? Can you imagine? These are these are the last people you would expect to be listening to, to Sex Pistols music. And they didn't listen to the Pistols music. They knew about them from their notoriety in the, in the British press. But... You know, again, not judging a book by its cover. And and I think if you were a teenager when the punk movement took hold, it must have felt exactly the same way that it felt in the middle, in the mid fifties when rock and roll took hold, I would think it just must have felt subversive and it must have felt like you were, you know, sticking it to the man and, and it was almost like a rebirth of rock and roll, rock and roll part two or something, you know? Well, I, I agree, and I think the other thing that I did, like in the fifties, was I'm sure a lot of people saw these fifties bands and kind of went, "I can do that. I can get a cheap guitar and I can rock out." Mm-hmm. You know, people were watching Genesis and ELP, going, "I can't. How can I do that?" I mean, there's this, these prog rocks, these big acts, and here's this band just, you know, two guitars, well, guitar, bass, and drums, just smashing up music. And I agree with you, Tony, a hundred percent. It was exactly what rock needed at the time. It was a boost. It was a huge boost to the rock rock and roll world, and we needed it. But I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget the sight of kids dancing to Sex Pistols at a Christmas party. I mean, the Pistols played well that show, too. It's a great gig to go out on. Yeah, fantastic. And in fact, the second part of this story, if we just fast forward one year exactly to 1978, yeah. uh, Johnny Lydon's new group, Public Image Limited, uh, they played their first live gig at the Rainbow Theatre in London. So there you go. I don't know if you've ever heard the very first single of, of Public Image Limited. The song starts off with Lydon laughing. And the very first line of the song is, you never listen to a word I said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. I love him. <laughs> now, which which was the, the television? We talked about it on this show. And I'm yes. trying to remember what program that he just sabotaged. Uh, which television pro Was it Top of the Pops or was it one of the other ones? Uh, well, there was a, a few, but I think the one that we talked about was uh, was it wasn't Top of the Pops. It was um, well, there was the Tomorrow Show with Tom Schneider. Yes, he just yes. it was the Tom Schneider, which the two of them sparring was was just um, my favorite comment was Tom Schneider, humor me, and Lydon goes just for a couple of minutes. <laughs> well, and you know, you know what uh, Snyder was was just being an idiot too in that interview because he he thought this guy's in he thought this guy knows nothing he's stupid and Lydon was actually pretty eloquent in his arguments so you know I think he surprised him too right he did and and I and I and I think Lydon can only tolerate so much 
Like he's he's that kind of. I've read both of his books, and and they're they're really good books because he really is quite honest, and he's also very self blaming for a lot of stuff. Like he's he's not about putting saying you know I screwed this up, and Schneider just went at him, uh-huh. and Leiden just kind of went okay, that will. And he was promoting Public Image Limited at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a, a historic day for both the Pistols and for Johnny Lydon, right? It is. And, you know, the society could not just, could not look past the haircuts and the piercings and the, and the way they dressed. And same thing, again, as rock and roll. People couldn't get past the fact that Elvis Presley wore his hair longer than most people did, you know? Or, right. Or couldn't get past the fact that he gyrated his hips and, and I this is my theory is that there's a reason why punk happened the same way. There's a reason why rock and roll happened and society was changing and, and, and they are completely a reaction to what was going on in society. Like when you look at what was going on in Britain at the time, if you're a young person, how much hope did you really have in 1976, 1977 in Britain? You you can totally understand why a punk scene emerged actually. And, you know, when you have songs like God Save the Queen, which has the, you know, the no future, no future for us, you know, uh, for me and all this. And I agree with you. I mean, you look at Elvis, we're not going to film him from the waist down. We're just going to film yeah. him from the waist up because it's, it, that's, you know, and and here are the pistols on TV wearing a t-shirt saying, I hate Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah. You know, people just couldn't get beyond the superficial stuff. And, and, for, no. I, and you know how much I like history. And that's my favorite part of both of these movements is, okay, what caused this? Because they're not, they didn't happen just in isolation. Like they were reactions oh, gosh, no. to what no. was going on in society at the time. That's why I enjoy our radio program from Memphis to Merseyside so much, because we, we get a little bit of a chance to dig into the historical aspects of it. And Tony, just to your point, I mean, who did the the punk artist cite as influences? They cited Elvis. They cited Gene Vincent, mm-hmm. Eddie Cochran. These people they were talking about, they were they they kind of they had no use for the seventies musicians, but they talked about the fifties artists as an inspiration. I don't think it's any it's any coincidence. I think you're right, a hundred percent. And I, I I agree with you. That's the beauty of the radio show. You can play the music because you can hear the music that was happening that appealed to the Pistols and Johnny Lydon, same as Elvis. I mean, what was what was Elvis listening to? And what was what was informing him? Mm-hmm. And what was the social context? Where did he grow up? What did he experience growing up, right? Well, that's right. Now, folks, I bet you if you're listening now, because you know this is our holiday special, you probably had no idea we were going to wander into the deep waters that we did today. But Aaron, I thought this was fascinating. We took some twists and turns here that I, that I don't think either one of us were expecting in our conversation today. Well, you took me off guard a couple of times. But <laughs> I, I think I think what's, what's, talking of twists and turns, I do want to kind of highlight the top five singles in the UK that year, though. Yes, please do. Because you have Bing Crosby at number five with White Christmas. We've talked about him already. We had Ruby Winters with I Will, which is a Beatle cover. The Bee Gees with How Deep Is Your Love. Number two, a brass band. But number one, and was the largest selling single, second only to White Christmas, Paul McCartney, Mull of Kintyre. Now, Tony, what's interesting about that song is it's punk in its own way because it's in the middle of disco, punk is gearing up in the UK, and McCartney puts out a waltz about Scotland. The yeah, bagpipes, and it makes number one for a month, two months. Yeah, who saw that coming? Yeah, that and that is the definition of punk, right there, right? <laughs> this guy, good, for, <laughs> good for him. <laughs> 
I mean, it's like you got the pistols on this hand, you got the Bee Gees over here, and in the middle you got Paul McCartney doing a waltz about yeah. Mall of Katire, which, um, I mean, I love the song, and it, it, it forever brings a tear to my eye, but um, who saw that one? I'm sure. Can you picture EMI Records, uh, Paul? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> You know, but it did. It, it, it was it was a big hit. So there you go. Well, guess what, folks? We are at the end of our road trip here. Our holiday special is finished. So thank you to Rick Denis for providing the music for today. Of course, Aaron and I are we are M2M Productions, and we record this here at the Bunker in Perth. And you're in Toronto, of course. We both got snow, so I'll be out there shoveling after this. But we would just like to thank you folks for everything that you do and sharing the show or telling a friend or providing us feedback. All that stuff really matters. If you're a radio listener, stick around for our post-podcast show. And Aaron, you've got another great Spotify list coming for our podcast listeners, don't you? Oh, this is a good one. I I, I promise you, you'll enjoy it. And it it might not be for the Christmas office party, but... um... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can't wait to hear that. So on behalf of both of us, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. I know Hanukkah will be going on when we air this show. So all the best, folks, and we will see you in 2023.